0: Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu.
1: Good morning. It's 830 on Tuesday, May 29th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, learn how one small Mississippi city's misuse of funds could provide a lesson to others. Then, an investigative podcast uncovers a major development in the case of a man tried six times for the same crime.
4: He said, It was a lie. I made it up. It's not true. And that is quite significant because of his status in the case. You know, he's the only person saying that Curtis confessed.
1: And later, why our Dr. Rick says Mississippians should be on the lookout for high blood pressure. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Leaders in the Mississippi town of Pelahatchie are facing a financial issue. State Auditor Stacey Pickering says they misappropriated some $500,000. Pelahatchie Mayor Rashonda Beecham, the former city clerk, and current alderman are said to be liable for $80,000 of that bill. Pickering says they use drug seizure funds to pay other bills, which is against the law. He says the monies are only for law enforcement expenses. Mayor Beecham took office July 1st, 2017. She says diverting funds began before she became mayor.
3: As the mayor, I will take accountability for signing checks because I did sign checks. I had to pay bills. However... People that are on the administration from the past are also on the administration for present. So as a new mayor and walking into this situation a month and a half, I was under the impression that people abide by the law. I have no other reason to justify that until the second month and realizing I was being asked to sign something that I knew was illegal.
1: Kiwahatchee Mayor Rashonda Beecham says once she found out it was illegal, she stopped it and told the Board of Aldermen. Auditor Stacey Pickering tells MPB's Desiree Fraser they have 30 days to come up with a payment plan.
0: Under state law and federal law, when a law enforcement entity seizes funds, typically related to drug uh, monies, those funds are then forfeited over to that city. The law stipulates those funds can only be spent on law enforcement expenditures. And that could be a pretty broad definition as far as training, some personnel, equipment, all of those factors, possibly paying overtime, all fit within the confines of the law. The town of Peelahatchee, during the last administration, during the first of the current administration, was actually using those forfeited monies, monies forfeited by criminals and those that were doing wrong, Uh, especially in the light of drug use and the drug trafficking trade, those funds, even though the law said it could only be spent on law enforcement, the town of Peelahatchee was using those funds for paying overtime for non-law enforcement personnel. They were paying other salaries. They were using it for parks and recreation. Um, They were paying it to actually pay and just keep the lights on when their regular budget was falling short of their expenditures. All of that is outside the bounds of the law and what the laws of Mississippi and the federal government allow.
3: Someone might say, well, they didn't actually misappropriate the funds. It's not like they stole it. They used it for things it sounds like the town may have needed the money for. You say that the law doesn't allow that at all.
0: Desiree, they actually did misappropriate those funds. The law is very clear that the money can only be spent on law enforcement. During this investigation, we were very liberal with the definition of what where the money was spent and how it was spent. If they par- paved a parking lot and thought they may one day park a police car on it, we tried to give them credit for it. But the law is very clear. The money can only be spent on law enforcement. Even though they were spending on other city services, they weren't generating the tax base and the revenue. This is where you have to look and say, can we continue to have the number of employees we have? Can we pay the salaries we're paying? They didn't have the money, and they were using these forfeited funds to prop up the city government of Peelahatchee.
3: How did you find out about this? Desiree, half of
0: our cases at the auditor's office are referred to us by concerned public whistleblowers, if you will. The other half we find during the audit process. And typically, sometimes you can get a combination where we see something, we start looking into it, and then somebody, whether an employee or a member of the public, uh, contacts us, and then you start getting enough synergy to actually open up a criminal investigation. While this case in Peelahatchee is not criminal. It did lead us to the misappropriation of taxpayer dollars.
3: Do you interview people when this happens? Do you call in people that uh, you designate as being involved in this and say, we've got a problem here?
0: Yeah, we actually, uh, in the course, like any law enforcement investigation, you not only interview individuals that are involved in the case, uh, but we also subpoena records, uh, whether it's the board minutes or whether it's bank accounts, and we can actually follow the money. Our financial investigations typically are quite lengthy because of so much forensic accounting has to go into that so we can document the financial misdoings or the financial fraud that may or may not have taken place so that eventually we know we have to be prepared to stand before a judge and a jury and with a district attorney, the attorney general of the state of Mississippi, or if it's a federal case, go with the U.S. attorney and be able to defend our position and our accusations. In 13 years as state auditor, we've only lost half a dozen cases. We try to make sure we have the facts right before we ever issue demand in the first place, because we know ultimately it's not just the court of public opinion, but eventually if these individuals, the former mayor, the current mayor, and the city councils for last administration, this administration, fail to pay back these monies, we will be in court.
3: Now, the mayor uh, of uh, Mayor Beecham, said that she contacted your office because She wanted to know, um, get some clarification on the law. She was concerned that they were doing something wrong. Would she be held liable because all of these folks, you said, are going to have to pay this money back?
0: The last administration was about $421,000 that's going to have to be paid back. The current administration, including the mayor and the city council and the city clerk, uh, it's looking for about $80,000. The way we issued the demand in this case is to give them as much flexibility as we can as a group to figure out how they're going to pay the money back. Uh, so we issued what we call a joint and several. It's everybody jointly now is liable. They've all had the demand issued. It's $80,000, not individually, but collectively. And they and their attorneys can work that out. They have 30 days to come up with a plan and a way to pay those funds back before we then take legal action in the courts.
3: So, if you're not satisfied with the plan they come up with, then you take them to court or how does that work?
0: They have the opportunity to pay the funds back. And if somebody comes back and wants to do an installment plan, that Typically, is something we do go before the courts or go to the bonding company. You got to remember, these elected officials are all bonded, and that's what that bond is there for—is for us to go against that bond, begin legal proceedings to collect that money to make the taxpayers whole, and so they'll have to have a very aggressive plan to pay this money back to the citizens Appeal of Pelahatchie.
3: Is this a cautionary tale for other municipalities in the state about how they spend uh, funds?
0: Yeah, you know, this is a cautionary tale for every city, every county across the state of Mississippi. To make sure they're following the law. You know, ignorance is not an excuse uh, under any circumstance for us as individuals or for individuals who serve on boards and commissions, especially in local governments. They must know what the law st- stipulates. And that's the reason that we have a technical assistance division at the auditor's office to help answer those kind of questions and do the research for local elected officials.
1: State Auditor Stacy Pickering with MPB's Desiree Frazier. Coming up, an investigative podcast uncovers a major development in the case of a man tried six times for the same crime. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
0: Normally, I don't recommend eavesdropping, but feel free to join in on my conversations. Our guest this week is the director of the Mississippi Community College Board, Andrea Mayfield.
2: You can drive 30 minutes in any direction and be at a community college campus. And and the other cool thing about community colleges is that, you know, there's no requirement for entrance other than a high school diploma or high school equivalency.
0: Sundays at 530 and Thursdays at 10 on MPB.
1: On July 16th, 1996, the owner and three employees of Tardy Furniture were found dead inside the Winona, Mississippi store. A former Tardy Furniture employee, Curtis Flowers, had been fired from the store days before. After six trials, Curtis Flowers is now on death row at Parchman Prison. His story is the subject of the new season of the investigative podcast, In the Dark. For the past year, I've been working with a team of
4: journalists looking into what happened in the case of Curtis Flowers.
0: It's too long,
2: way too long. And Curtis Flowers is still in prison, and it's still
4: dragging it on. We've talked to hundreds of people who live in this part of Mississippi, and it's clear that the way people think about the Curtis Flowers case, for the most part, depends on whether they're white or black.
1: Joining us with more on In the Dark and a major development revealed in today's episode is the show's lead reporter, Madeline Barron. How did you find out about the story of Curtis Flowers? How did you decide to spend a year reporting on him?
4: We are a part of an investigative reporting team called APM Reports. And we were um, we have a, a podcast called In the Dark. And after our first season, we solicited ideas from listeners like all across the country. And we got thousands of ideas and we also received in that big um, pile of emails one very simple email that was one of the shortest ones, and it said, I live in Mississippi. There's this man here named Curtis Flowers who I think could be innocent, and he's been tried six times for the same crime. And we were surprised by that because we had never heard of someone being tried six times for the same crime and we looked into it, and it turned out it was true. And so then we went from there.
1: Why has this case been tried six times? I mean, that's an, that's an incredible number.
4: Right. Well, the short answer is because the prosecutor can. Um, so what's happened in Curtis's case is that um, he gets tried. He appeals. He says to the Mississippi Supreme Court, look, my trial was not fair. The Mississippi Supreme Court agrees with Curtis Flowers, overturns a conviction, But instead of, at that moment, Curtis getting out of prison, the prosecutor, Doug Evans, the DA, just decides to try the case again. So Curtis has been tried six times, convicted four times, with two mistrials. And so even though the case keeps getting overturned, The prosecutor remains the same, and Curtis remains in prison. So Curtis has been in prison or jail since 1997.
1: Where is he in prison? Is he on death row?
4: He is in Parchman.
1: When was the last trial?
4: The last trial was in 2010.
1: What did you expect when you came to Winona, Mississippi? That's a small town, and you spent a year on this. Were you in Winona for a year?
4: We were living just outside of Winona. um, And so, yeah, we lived um, for nearly a year um, in Mississippi. And, you know... I guess we really didn't know what to expect. I mean, as reporters, when we go into a story, we go in with an open mind and just start talking to people and see what we find out. And I think for this story in particular, it was so important to live there and to have our our team living there. I mean, it's it's not just me. It's a team of um, five reporters and producers working on this full time. Because the story is complicated. It involves more than 20 years of time, six trials. And so we wanted to get the story right. And so we felt there was no other way to do that other than just living there.
1: You talked to a number of witnesses in the podcast. How difficult was it to convince people to talk to you? How how did you earn their trust?
4: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think that um, for a lot of people, especially people who'd been witnesses at trial, you know, they have been approached. They have testified, first of all, and some of them. It's all six times. And they've been approached a lot over the years, not so much by reporters, but by defense investigators, DA's investigator. And so when we would knock on their door, that was their first reaction. Like, they thought we must be from, like, some lawyer's side. And one of the ways that I think people got comfortable talking to us is that we would say to them, which is true, you know, we're not lawyers. We are not on a side. We just want to find out what happened. And then people would open up to us.
1: In episode three, you focus on a lot of the evidence against Curtis Flowers. What stood out to you about the way evidence was gathered or used?
4: Right. So in episode three, we talk about the gun that the D.A., Doug Evans, says Curtis used to kill the four people at Tardy Furniture. And what stood out to us was the the, the so-called forensic science that was underlining this gun evidence. So at trial, the, um, the D.A. had Used an expert to testify that that he could tell with a hundred percent certainty that this gun, which is was missing, it's a stolen gun, has never been found. This gun was the murder weapon, and he said, "I'm a hundred percent certain." And it turns out we looked into this that that you cannot be a hundred percent certain of this. I mean, we talked to scientists, people who are experts in the science of this field, um, and they said, "No, that's just not not possible." So what the jury heard, not just in the gun evidence, but throughout the trials, was this idea that this case was 100% solid, that it all made sense, it all fit together. But what we were doing is pulling these pieces apart and looking at each one and saying, when you do that, you see problems with each one of these pieces of evidence. So you see problems with the people who claim they saw Curtis walking around in the morning of murders. You see problems with the forensic evidence. You see problems with the jailhouse informants. And so although at trial it looked very convincing, certainly convincing enough to convince a jury four times to convict Curtis, um, when we looked at it, it, it did not look that convincing. Did
1: you talk to the prosecutor when he talked to you?
4: Um, we did talk to him briefly.
1: Did he tell you anything of significance in that brief conversation?
4: I mean, we're going to get into it later in the podcast, so I don't want to kind of get ahead of that, Um and, and, you know, we're still we have still are have um, records requests into his office, um, in particular about um, this man, Odell Hallman, who is one of the prison informants that Doug Evans was relying on. And one of the outstanding requests we have in is wanting to know more about um, Odell Hallman's criminal record, especially around the time that he became a state's witness. And as of right now, we haven't still haven't heard back from
1: him. In this new episode that's out today, there is a key development in your storytelling You end up talking to Odell Hallman. So tell us who he is, how he's key to this case, and what that new development is.
4: Sure. So Odell Hallman is a very important witness for the DA, Doug Evans. And he is the only, provides the only piece of direct evidence in the case against Curtis Flowers right now. So what Odell testifies to in court is he says that when he was in prison with Curtis Flowers, Curtis Flowers personally confessed to the murders at Tardy Furniture to him. And so Odell Hallman has repeated this testimony in trial after trial, including the most recent one. And so so we reached out to Odell Hallman. He's in Parchment Prison. He has a cell phone in his jail cell. And so our producer Samara ended up talking to him on the phone. And as she did, Odell Hallman revealed to her that that story that Curtis had confessed to him was just that. It was a story. He said it was a lie. I made it up. It's not true. And that is quite significant because of his status in the case. You know, he's the only person saying that Curtis confessed. He's providing the only piece of direct evidence. The rest of the case is circumstantial. And so now he's saying, you know what, the word he used, he said, it's a fantasy.
1: Why do you think he told you that?
4: I think, you know, he's in Parchman Prison. I mean, at first when he contacted us, he wanted money. He said, I'm not going to talk unless you give me money. I'm not going to talk unless you write a book on me. And We kept telling him we're not going to do that, obviously. I mean, as a journalist, there's no way that's happening. And I think eventually he just realized that and he just talked. I mean, at first it did not seem like he was going to talk, honestly. I mean, it seemed like he was looking for something. I mean, he was clearly he was asking for money. Um, but but he did. And, you know, not only that, but he talked to us, too, about um, his relationship with the DA, Doug Evans. And what he was saying, I mean, you can choose not to trust Odell about this part, except that it back, it was backed up by our reporting into his criminal records. So one of the things that we found out was that around the time that Odell Hallman became a state's witness, he had several pending charges, criminal charges, against him. And some of those charges went away. And so Odell, and we talked to law enforcement, law enforcement told us, like cops and sheriff's deputies said, well, obviously the reason those charges went away is because this man testified um, or, or provided some kind of information. I mean, that... that you know, one of the people who told us that was the current warden of the jail in Grenada, who had arrested Odell more than once. And then we talked to Odell Hallman, and Odell Hallman tells us, oh, yeah, I mean, it was completely transactional. Um, you know, I wanted to get out of jail. I wanted to get rid of these charges. And so I entered into this deal, basically, with the prosecutor, which, you know, I, I knew they wanted information. I gave them information. And... um I got something in exchange.
1: Have you talked to the prosecutor since talking to Hallman? Yes. Did he have a response to that charge, or is that coming up in another episode?
4: It's coming up in another episode, but he has not—I mean, he has remained consistent, just to be perfectly clear on this point. He has remained consistent um, that he did not give Odell anything in exchange for his testimony. Um, And he's very consistent at trial. Doug Evans is about— what he believes or, or says to the jurors is the truthfulness of Odell Hallman's testimony. And he, the way that Doug Evans describes this, and, and, and when he's uh, examining Odell Hallman, at trial describes it, is that Odell Hallman was a man like with a conscience who's trying to do the right thing, who wants to be truthful. And so he's coming forward with this difficult information. So that's the DA's, um, what the DA has said publicly about the case.
1: I just want to go back. You said that Odell Hallman had talked to you from, or, or talked to your producer, from a cell phone in his cell. A cell phone is not allowed in prison. It's considered contraband. Do you know how he got the cell phone?
4: I do not. I mean, Odell Hallman told us, like, not only does he have a cell phone in his cell, he also said, I mean, his words, he said he had all kinds of stuff. He had all kinds of contraband in there. He said he had drugs in there. He said he was running, like, a cash business. When he's on the phone with Samara, you can kind of overhear him talking about various transactions. It's unclear what exactly, but um, it's busy in his cell. I mean, he's he's got a lot going on and it's not at all what you might expect of a man who's in a solitary cell.
1: He is in solitary confinement, which means he's not supposed to have contact with other people.
4: Yeah. So the crimes that Odell is in prison for are incredibly serious. So he killed his ex-girlfriend. He killed his ex-girlfriend's mother. He tried to kill his own son. He killed another man and he shot another man five times who survived. All in one night, and this is like the the final point in a long history of crimes by Odell Hallman, where we found when we w- went and pieced together all of his criminal history, that after Odell Hallman became a state's witness in the case against Curtis Flowers, many times, he was arrested, and in some of those cases, he had charges dropped, he had the penalties reduced, he did not get the maximum prison time that he could have received on more than one occasion. And so what that meant is that he was out in April of 2016, which meant that he could go and kill these three people. And so there was an opportunity for the D.A. Doug Evans to put Odell Hallman away for a very long time, but he chose not to do that. And as a, and then Odell was out, and then Odell committed these murders.
1: Was that just that one conversation with him from his jail cell?
4: No, uh, there are multiple conversations. Um, and you know another thing we talk about too—it's—it's—he is also sending Facebook messages. He has sent Facebook messages. So Odell Hallman killed three people in 2016, and he has sent Facebook messages to the brother of the woman he killed. He killed the brother. This this man whose sister and mother was killed by Odell. Odell is sending has sent him Facebook messages um, from prison, from his cell phone.
1: What kind of messages?
4: Asking for money. I mean, it's incredibly upsetting to the family. I mean, can you imagine your loved ones have been murdered and this person is in prison and then you're on Facebook and you get a message from this man?
1: How long ago was that, were your conversations with him? How long ago was he sending Facebook messages?
4: He continues to send them.
1: Today is episode six, or today the podcast of episode six drops. How many episodes are there altogether? together? Ten. 10. All right. So we're more than halfway through. How can people access the podcasts?
4: They can go to iTunes or to any podcast app and just type in In the Dark, or you can just go to our website. It's inthedarkpodcast.org.
1: All right. Madeline Barron is the host and lead reporter of In the Dark, and it's a podcast from the American public media. So thank you so much for sharing some of this information with us, Madeline. Yeah, thanks for having me. Also, a longer cut of this interview will be in today's episode of the Mississippi Edition podcast. Just subscribe to Mississippi Edition in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. Coming up, why Mississippians should be on the lookout for high blood pressure. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
3: It's an expensive cycle. Insurance, gas, maintenance. Let us help break it by turning that car of yours into public radio. If your car is more work than it's useful, donate it to us. We'll pick it up, get top dollar for it, and use the funds to bring you more of your favorite shows. You might even qualify for a tax deduction.
0: Donate your car, motorcycle, boat, or RV by going to mpbonline.org.
1: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. More Mississippians are suffering from high blood pressure than citizens in any other state, according to health experts. They say if your blood pressure is persistently greater than 120 over 80, seek medical attention. High blood pressure, or hypertension, is a condition in which the force of the blood against the artery walls is too high. If uncontrolled, it can lead to heart attacks, heart disease, and among the most deadly, strokes. Dr. Rick DeShazo is professor of medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He tells MPB's Ashley Norwood doctors are checking and treating high blood pressure more aggressively now than ever.
2: High blood pressure is the silent killer. And the problem is, is that 50%, half of people who have high blood pressure, don't know they have it. And the damage to the blood vessels from that increased pressure being pumped through them, and the damage to the heart, which is put under a strain to make that happen uh, when you have high blood pressure, begins uh, in many people before they even know it. So that is why it is so important for anyone over 50 or anyone who has a family history of high blood pressure to get in the habit of checking their blood pressure regularly. And fortunately, now the -the over-the-counter blood pressure devices are very good. And most of them are less than $50. So we're asking every family to get a home blood pressure cuff, learn how to use it. You can do it yourself. You don't need any help. Don't get the wrist one. Get the one that goes around the upper arm. And if you have a big upper arm, you need to get a large cuff to go with it rather than using the one that comes with it. But if you check your blood pressure and it's greater than 120 over 80 persistently, then you need to check in with your doctor.
3: Now You mentioned like if if there is a history of high blood pressure in your family, definitely want to get checked. Is there a cut age for it? How soon should I start if I know that my father has it Mm -hmm. and my, my grandmother had it?
2: We are seeing large numbers of kids in grammar school with high blood pressure. And the reason is is that large numbers of kids in grammar school are overweight. So if your kid is overweight, uh, and by the way, people in, in Mississippi, many of us think that being a little chubby is healthy. It's not. Uh, you don't see fat old people. You see skinny old people. That's the only person who lives to be old are these skinny people. And so uh, anybody, any kid who is overweight uh, needs to be watching their blood pressure regularly. Now, uh, in our pediatric clinics, we're taking blood pressures on young children now, five, six. Uh, And if there is a history of any kind of disease associated with high blood pressure, even earlier, because uh, there are certain... uh, disease, endocrinologic diseases that are associated with it as well. But uh, certainly by the time a child is in grammar school, they should have had a blood pressure check.
1: Now with high blood pressure in Mississippi, is it safe to say we're among the highest um, across the country?
2: Yes, our rates of high blood pressure, diabetes, stroke, uh, and all the problems associated with high blood pressure are the highest in the U.S. There's a thing called metabolic syndrome, and metabolic syndrome is associated with being overweight or obese. That's high blood pressure, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, which is uh, abnormal uh, blood fats, cholesterol, and gout. All of those things go together, so we are seeing epidemics of gout, which is a hot, swollen joint, usually the big toe, we're seeing lots of people with cholesterol issues, and of course, we see a lot of diabetes from obesity, type 2 diabetes.
3: What happens like when you don't get checked?
1: I know we're trying to get more people checking themselves, with it's over-the-counter or with their primary caregiver, but um, what happens when you don't?
2: The majority of people who have untreated hypertension end up getting a complication, that complication may be eye problems because high blood pressure causes what's called hypertensive retinopathy uh you can lose your uh vision uh strokes uh because of the high pressure uh kidney problems. you know we have uh, uh dialysis clinics everywhere for people with kidney failure in Mississippi. The reason we have that is high blood pressure. That's what caused them to get kidney failure and have to get on dialysis and, or get a kidney transplant. So that's another complication. Uh, and then, of course, heart attacks. Uh, eventually, it if you have it long enough, it promotes the deposits of cholesterol in your vessels so we also see people with peripheral vascular disease that have pain when they walk uh, or other blood vessel related problems so uh, it's only a matter of time if you have untreated blood pressure before you'll get a complication.
1: UMMC's Dr. Rick DeShazo with MPB's Ashley Norwood. May is High Blood Pressure Awareness Month. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs. Coming up at 9 o'clock, Money Talks, then at 10 o'clock in legal terms, and at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB public media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Listen again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio.
0: Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu.